Church, good to see all of you. Happy Labor Day weekend. So, I plan on working tomorrow just in honor of it being Labor Day. Amen? Amen. Really glad, uh, really glad that you've chosen to be here. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians uh, chapter 4 this morning. I uh, hope that you have a copy of God's Word and you'll find uh, Ephesians in the New Testament and then find chapter 4. We'll begin there at the beginning of, of that chapter. Um, you know, I, um, I, I think that one of the biggest threats in our world today is simply a lack of unity. I think that's true worldwide. I think it is true in our nation. I think it's true in our state, in our communities, in our churches, and in our families. We live at this really weird time when it is in style to disagree with everybody else. And not only do we think it's in style to disagree with everyone else, we think we have the right to do that loudly and to attack the person that dare disagree with us. And this lack of unity, I'm convinced, is tearing at the very fabric of our nation and our state and our communities and our churches and our families. And I think as Christ followers, at some point we have, we have to come to grips with that thought, if I be right, and I think I am. And then determine as Christ followers, what do we do about that? Is there an answer to it? Is there a solution to it? Is there a better way? than what we experience today. Because the reality is, as good as it may be in your home, as good as it may be in this church, as good as it may be in this community, as good as we may have it in our state, or even our nation, we can't be caught in the middle of all of this disunity and not be affected by it. It wears on us. And we're not quite sure what to do about it. And I think at some point the church has to come together and say, this is what we do. This is how we deal with this. This is how we address this. And that's my goal this morning is to give you a little bit of a biblical foundation that I think might might help. Let's pray together and then we'll get to Ephesians chapter 4. Father, we are grateful for this day that you've given us. God, you are a good, good father who knows our needs before we do and is already working to meet those. We thank you, Father, that we can trust you, that we can trust your word. We thank you, Father, that we can rely upon you and know that you will not let us down, that we can stand upon you and you are the solid rock. We thank you, Father, that we can cry out to you and that you hear us. Whether we cry out with our voice or with our hearts, you hear us. And more than hear us, Father, we are thankful today that you are more than able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything that any of us might ask or think of asking you today. God, I thank you that you are not limited by my lack of faith, that you're not made smaller by my lack of trust, that you're not made less powerful 
by my dad, but that you are omniscient and omnipotent, omnipresent. God, you are everywhere, all-powerful, all-knowing, and there is none like you. Thank you, Father, for being that way. And yet, God, thank you for being personal enough that you would not only be here with us, but you would be here in us. God, help us not to forget that. Help us not to be thankful for that. Help us, Father, as we read your word today to know that it is your word intended for us on this day just as you have protected it and preserved it and provided it to us. Help us to see it that way and to know it that way and to respond to it that way. In the blessed name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen. And all the Lord's people said, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes and says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing or forbearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I'm going to encourage you to keep your Bibles open this morning, but I want you to look with me for a moment in, in verses 4 through 6. You know, one of, the, uh, one of the biblical hermeneutics that we are taught is that when you're reading Scripture, if you come across a word or a phrase or a statement that is being repeated, that it is being repeated for an important reason and, and that we should slow down a little bit and see if we can figure out why this word is being repeated. Well, did you notice in verses 4 through 6 that there is the repetition of the word one? Did you notice that? And for those of you that are a more uh, numerically a position than I am, you probably have already counted those. And if you counted them, you would find that the word one appears seven times in those two verses. Isn't that an interesting thing that it would appear seven times? Because you probably know that the word seven is a very important biblical uh, number. It refers to a completeness, to a wholeness, and, and here, here, here this word one is repeated no fewer than seven times. So obviously this is important. It may even be the foundation upon which unity is built. You know, one of the things that we see in these verses, and, and if you'll just look at them again with me, verses 4 through 6, one of the things that we see in these verses, I'm quite convinced, is, is an incredible picture of the unity of the Trinity. The unity of the Trinity. You say, Joe, where do you see that? Man, that's a great question. Did you notice that as we were reading, it talks about the fact that there is one Spirit and one Lord and one God. That's the Trinity. Three in one. One Spirit, one Lord, one God. And so here we are reminded that there are not many spirits but one. There's not many lords but one. There's not many gods but one. There is this picture of the Trinity. And I, and, and I think the whole notion of this oneness here should force us to consider that the divine source and the miracle of unity is the Trinity itself. You ever thought about the fact that the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity has always been, is, and will always be in perfect unity? 
Have you ever thought about the fact that there is no disunity in the Trinity, that there never has been, nor will there ever be disunity in the Trinity, that, it, that the Trinity is completely and totally and irrevocably unified? There has never, there's never been a time that the Father has called Jesus and the Holy Spirit in and set them down and said, now listen guys, you know what I want and you guys seem to be going another direction and that's got to stop. That conversation has never happened. Jesus has never sat down with the Holy Spirit and said, hey Holy Spirit, you know, you know God the Father, he's kind of off on one of those tangents and I don't know if we should go with him or not. That conversation has never, ever happened. Why? Because the Trinity is in complete and total and irrevocable unity. And as, 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 as we look here, we see this, this perfect unity. Now, now look at our verses. And I, and, and I would challenge you to, to think about this with me. Because there is one Spirit, because there is one Lord, because there is one God, then guess what? There is one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. And were it not for the unity of the Trinity, then there would be many bodies and many hopes and and many baptism and many faiths. But ironically, that would mean that there are no hopes and no faiths and no baptisms. And you see, the unity of the Trinity is the basis for everything that we are and who we are. It is the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit that share this same purpose and this same plan and this same power and nothing can separate them. They are completely and totally unified in everything they do and therein is the basis for our unity. I don't know when the last time is that you've, you've been reading in the Gospel of John or particularly chapter 17. It is the chapter that contains what we call the, the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Quite honestly, and, th- and this will disrupt some of you, but you can come apologize to me later. later. John chapter 17 is the Lord's Prayer. That prayer back over in the Beatitudes that we read in the Gospel of Matthew is not actually the Lord's Prayer. It is a model prayer. But the prayer of the Lord is in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. And as you read that prayer, one of the things that you see Jesus talking about multiple times is how he and the Father are one. He talks about the unity of the Trinity in this high priestly prayer that he and the Father are one. And then Jesus does this amazing thing. He begins to pray for you. And in this high priestly prayer of John 17, he begins to pray for me and he begins to pray for us. And his prayer for us is that we would be unified in the same way that he and the Father are unified. Jesus prays for our unity. He even goes so far, and I know that I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but my friends, it bears repeating. Jesus even goes so far as to say that our unity is evidence that the Father has sent the Son to this world. Have you ever thought about the fact that the unity of the local church is undeniable evidence of the gospel. That the unity of the local church is undeniable evidence that the Father has a plan and a purpose, and part of that plan and part of that purpose was the sending of Jesus to die for our sins upon that cross. There is this wonderful unity in John chapter 17. 
And the reality is this, if Jesus is right, (laughs) if Jesus is right that our unity is evidence that that the Father sent the Son, if Jesus is right that our unity is evidence of the reality of the gospel, then that can only mean that our disunity, stay with me, that our disunity tears away at the gospel and causes people to reject the notion that Jesus was sent to this earth by God the Father. You see, this unity business is really important business. That the disunity of God's people causes the world to doubt the veracity of the gospel. So is it any surprise that churches that are always fussing and fighting about this or that are seldom the churches that are growing. And the reason that churches that are fussing and fighting about this and that aren't growing is because the world looks at that fuss and the world looks at that fight and sees no evidence of the gospel, no evidence of the supreme power of God sending his only son to die for our crosses or our sin. The the, the world looks at those fusses and fights and says, listen, that's what I see every place else around me. Why would I want to go to a church and engage in that? And so people turn away from the church. They walk away from the church when the church is always engaged in fussing and fighting about this and that. You see, friends, this unity among God's people discounts the very message of salvation. Here's a little extra I'll give you. No, No charge today. Did you know that the power of unity can actually be seen in the very first church in Acts chapter 2. Did you know that? At the end of Acts chapter 2 is that first New Testament church is birthed, beginning in about verse 42. Peter preaches, right? And And all these people get saved. And this church is born in Jerusalem of all places, beginning in verse 42. And down through verse 47, we have this remarkable description of the church that God intended And one of the things it says down at the very end of that is that they were all in one accord. If you carry King James Version, it's all in one accord. That has very little to do with the kind of car they drove, and it had everything to do with the unity that they were living in. Some of y'all missed my Honda joke, didn't you? (laughs) They were living in this incredible unity. And do you know how Acts chapter 2 actually ends? The Lord was adding to the church daily those that were being saved. You know why people were being added to the church? God was saving them. You know why they were coming into the church? Because the church in Acts chapter 2 was so unique, so different, so unlike anything that anybody had ever seen before that people were clamoring to be a part of it. And part of what made that church in Acts 2 so unique was the unity of the people. So you see, we must always be careful never to discount the power and the importance of unity. But the reality is, you don't have to look very far at our world to see how much unity is in short supply. 
We see it in nation against nation. We see it in terrorism. We see it in our politics. We, we even see it, let me meddle just a little bit, we even see it in whether or not we should wear a mask or not, or whether we should be vaccinated or not. We, we have churches in our state that are being torn apart over where people should be masked or whether people should be vaccinated. And, and, and if you would allow me just a, a point of personal privilege, I would say to you that we have pastors that are under attack in this state in ways that they have never been under attack before simply because they are being forced by a pandemic to make decisions about masks and vaccines. And regardless of what decision they make about masks and about vaccines, part of the church is mad at them and part of the church is attacked them. And friends, we have men leaving the ministry in numbers never before seen because they can't continue to live under the pressure and the conflict that's being poured upon them. It is, it is, it is a difficult time to be a pastor. I would encourage you to pray for those men. I would encourage you to pray for them. You know, the reason that unity is so uncommon is because it's not natural. Our, our, our sin divides us. Our, our sin nature separates us. The Holy Spirit is the one that unites us. In fact, I would go so far and say this, that if you and I are both saved, <laughs> if you and I are both saved, then the same Holy Spirit lives in you that lives in me, and that gives us one option, and that is to be unified. Because when we are not in unity, we are pulling apart what the Spirit has put together. You see, the presence of the Holy Spirit in each of us is a unifying unifying force. And I think that's one of the reasons, as we go back to the beginning of, 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 of Ephesians chapter 4, you thought I wasn't going to get back to those first verses, didn't you? I think that's one of the reasons Paul is urging us. Did you, did you notice his language in verse 1? He is urging us to live differently. He is urging us to be different. It is a pleading where it says urging, he is pleading. Literally, that word urging or pleading, depending on the translation that you have, is it's a very interesting word. It literally means to call someone alongside of you. To say to a brother or sister, hey, hey, come, come, here, come here for a minute. Come, come here, let's, let's, let's stand here and talk for a moment. Let's, let, let's get close and, 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 and have this conversation. It is, a, it is a, a calling of someone close to you so that you can plead with them. A, a begging of someone to come close so that, so that help can be delivered. And what is it that, that Paul's pleading for? Look, look at verse 1. He's pleading for a different kind of walk, a, a new way to live. And the reality, the reality is this. As I call you to my side or you call me to your side, as we walk together through this life, the only way we walk together is that we walk in unity. We will never walk together if we are disunified. But when we are in unity, we will walk together as brothers. 
We will walk together as sisters. We will walk together as children of God. And Paul is pleading for this, begging for this, telling us to, to live differently. He says that we are to live in a, in a worthy manner, in, in a way that balances the scales. Isn't that an interesting term when he talks about walking in a worthy manner, in a way that balances the scales? What is that about, Joe? It's a great question. It means that our lives begin to line up, to balance with the high calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. And can I tell you that as my life begins to balance with the high calling of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your life begins to balance with the high calling of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be together. We will be unified. We will walk together in, in this life. So Paul pleads for us to live in this way. And, then, and, 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 and then, then he tells us what this walk should look like. You see, verses 4 through 6 are kind of the basis of our unity. Verses 1 through 3 are the behaviors of that unity. And the first, the first behavior of this unity, look at what he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How? With all humility the first characteristic of, of unity. The first characteristic is, 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 is humility. Did you, know, did you know that the Romans, neither the Romans nor the Greeks had a word in their language that is translated humility? Did you know that? It's a little curiosity. It may tell us something about the attitude of the Greeks and the Romans, that they were very prideful people, and, and this whole notion of humility simply didn't fit with their way of life or, or fit with how they evaluated who was succeeding and, and who wasn't. The, the, the reality is that this word humility is a uniquely Christian word. The, the, the theologians tell us that it may have actually been coined by Christians. There are some that believe that maybe the Apostle Paul himself created this word that is translated humility in our language. It, 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 it is a most unique thing. So well, what does it mean? What, is it, what does this word humility mean? Literally, it means to think or to judge with lowliness. So what in the world does that mean? I think it means two things. I think it means that you ought not think more highly of yourself than you should and that you've got to honor other people. That's humility. I'm not going to think more highly of myself than I should, and I'm going to honor you. And if, and if I can tamp down what I'm thinking about myself, if I can keep that in line with the Scripture, and I can honor you in the life that you're living, in the person that you are, you guess, guess what? We're going to walk together. We can go together in that situation. Now, if, if, I get, if I get all huffy and all prideful and all, hey, look at me because I'm all that in a bag of chips, you're not going to have much to do with me. You're going to walk for me, away from me, and if you acted that way, I probably wouldn't have much with you, to do with you. But if I'm not thinking any more highly of myself than I ought to, and I'm treating you with honor, I'm giving you honor where honor is, 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 is deserved, then, 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 then there's humility and then there's unity. By the way, by the way, humility is one of those weird things that the more you think about it, the less you have it. The better you think you're doing at that, the worse you're doing at that. Right? 
If you're not careful, humility will flip on you and you'll be proud. In fact, I'll just tell you, one of the best sermons I ever preached in my life was on humility. Oh, it was good. Thanks. You know that's not true because never, I've never preached a good sermon, so it can't be true. It's a preacher joke. Let's move on. Let's move on. So there's humility. The first behavior of unity is humility. The second behavior is gentleness or meekness, depending on the Bible that you're carrying today. Now, whatever that is, whether it's gentleness or, 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 or meekness, that, that does not refer to timidity or weakness or cowardice. It is instead power under control or power under authority. And I really like that second part of it, power under authority. You think about a horse that has, has been tamed. That tamed horse can still run as fast as he could run before he was tamed. That tame horse still has the same power available that he had before he was tamed. But the concept of meekness or gentleness means that that strength in that tame horse is under authority, that he does what the master instructs him to do. That's, weak, or that's, that, that's gentleness and that's meekness. All right, let's move on. The third characteristic of unity. You with me? What is, what's it going to be? Look, he says, he says, let there be humility and gentleness, and then we got patience. Patience, literally long-tempered. If you want to know what patience means in, uh, in, in the Scripture, it means, I love that word, long-tempered. I never get to say that word, long-tempered. If you're in Walmart and the lady asks you how you're doing, and you say, I'm pretty long-tempered today, that's not going to communicate well. But it's a great word, isn't it? Long-tempered. By the way, let me stop and, and, and remind you that you should never pray for patience. Right? Don't do that to yourself because the Bible says tribulation worketh patience. Tribulation brings patience. Trouble brings patience. So if you say, God, I need patience, guess what he's going to give you? Trouble. So don't pray for that for yourself. Now, you may want to pray it on somebody else, right? You may want to call somebody else by name and say, Lord, give them patience, and, and there comes the trouble, but don't ever do that for yourself. So, so, so one of the things that we know about unity is that, that one of the behaviors is patience. It, 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 unity strives to endure negative circumstances. As much as it is in you, live at peace with those around you. And by the way, if you've got the Holy Spirit living in you, you've got the ability to live in peace with those around you. In fact, not living in peace with those around you kind of means that we've got the Holy Spirit tamped down into a small corner where he can't bother us. Right? So there's patience. The fourth characteristic of humility is bearing or forbearing with love. And what does that mean? We got to we got to talk about this. What does that mean to 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 bearing with love or forbearing with love? Let, let me let me give you Ligon's translation of this. And one of these days, the Ligon Bible will come out, and you can buy, it and you'll know all the, you'll know everything I know. Bearing with love or fair forbearing with love simply means there are times you have to tolerate other people. 
You may not like them, but you've got to tolerate them. Now, I'm not telling you to tolerate their sin. That's different. What I'm telling you is forbearing with, with love or bearing up with love means you've got to tolerate people. In fact, the reality is this. If you are a Christ follower, if it hasn't already happened in your life, it's going to happen in your life. There are going to be idiots that come into your life. And the best, most Christian thing you can do is just tolerate them. Tolerate the idiots. And if you're sitting there thinking, I don't have any idiots in my life, that may mean you're the idiot in somebody else's life. Just to encourage you, right? Sometimes we just have to tolerate the idiots. Now, if if you put that on Facebook and say, I said it, I'll accept it, but just know. They're just just people, they're bona fide idiots. Some of them can't help it, some of them can and do it anyway. We just have to tolerate. Not their sin, but their idiocy. And I think that's what it means to to, to bear with love. Here's, Paul goes on. Paul goes on. And then he said, look at what he says. He says, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager. Stop right there. Eager. That word means to make haste. It means to run to this. In other words, don't hesitate to live like you are supposed to live. Don't hesitate to treat others right. Don't hesitate to chase after unity, but to be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice, notice that the unity of the Spirit is what we ought to be running after. And as we allow the Spirit to work in our lives, He will bond us together. Literally, He will glue us together in a way that, our un, that, that, that will be undeniable evidence that the Father sent the Son. You know, when I started this morning, I told you about the unity of the Trinity. Remember? I want you to think with me for a moment about the diversity of the Trinity. Because every person of the Trinity has a little bit different job than the other two. Isn't it interesting that the Trinity is in unity even with this glorious diversity. Joe, what's your point? That's a good question. It's a good question. You got your Bible? Look in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Stop. Grace was given to every one of us. If you're Christ's follower... You've been given grace. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And in saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, you really want me to talk about that but I'm not going to. Look in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You see, you see those gifts and those positions? 
Our unity doesn't mean that we're uniform. Our unity doesn't mean that we're just alike. In fact, how horribly boring would that be? But instead, in our unity is this glorious diversity. Every one of us with a different spiritual ability and in some cases with a different spiritual office that is to be used, if you continue reading in that chapter, which is to be used to grow up the body of Christ in unity. So you see, you're different than I am. Praise God. And you should be really happy that you are different from me. But in the midst of those differences, in the midst of that diversity, should reside incredible unity. The church will never be the church when she is not in unity. But the church will be the glorious church when she is unified. Because this unity is so unique, so different, so unheard of in this world that we live in. And the reality of this unity is not only is it the work of the Spirit in us, but it is a desire on our part to live together in such a way that only unity can be the result. So I've got to make room for you. And for the next two or three weeks, you need to make room for me. And together we can walk in unity so that the world can see that the Father truly sent the Son. You bow your heads, close your eyes, will you? All of this unity is possible only because of Jesus in us. If you've never been saved, then today you should give your life to Jesus. If you never have been born again, today you should give your life to Jesus. You said, Joe, how do I do that? Simply say, Jesus, here's my life. Will you take it? Will you make it yours? There are others of you that have been saved. You have a decision to make about baptism or about church membership. You ought to come. You ought to come today to the front and just say to the church, hey, I need to be saved. I need to be baptized. I want to join the church. You should come. Or maybe you should just make your way to the altar this morning and pray on, on, on your knees and on your face that you will be one of those that works for unity in, in, in the community of this church. That God empower you to live in a way that unity is the fruit. You come, will you? As we sing, you come. Let's stand together.